Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover and special guest host Law360's research and data editor, Jackie Bell. Hey all, how's it going? How are we feeling now that, you know, we've had a few days to kind of take in the end of the term? Yeah, all the dust has settled, so now we give our big takes from the last nine months. (laughs) Jackie, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here on this short holiday week. (laughs) Absolutely. So let's jump right into it. We've talked about all the big cases, the stakes, the implications for voting rights, the Affordable Care Act, all these different things. Now it's time to just take a breath and look back, you know, with some of the maybe some of the data trends that we saw um, since the term began in October. Um, So, Jackie, let me just kind of pose the big question. What did you kind of make of the term, some of the numbers, and how did it stack up against, you know, recent terms that we've seen? And when we have such a new Supreme Court, there are uh, obviously three new Trump appointees on the court, and this was the first term um, where we had the newest justice, Justice Amy Coney Barrett. So you now have a six to three majority of Republican appointees to Democratic ones. So was this, did this live up to the billing as the new super conservative majority on the court? I'm not sure it quite lived up to that, but I think that there's a lot to digest here. <laughs> and maybe, uh, you know, maybe there were some signals about what's to come more than more than anything else. I mean, we can kind of go through what what we know about this term and then kind of talk about <laughs> what it all means, which is probably kind of still up in the air. But uh, we definitely had more unanimous cases this term. Um, 25 of the 54 signed opinions issued this term were unanimous. So that's 8 or 9 depending on whether Barrett was around, um, mostly. Um, so that is more than we saw last year. Last year was only about a third of the 53 signed opinions were unanimous. Um, there were also 10 more cases that ended up being 8-1 or 7-1 or 7-2, where you had sort of a pretty significant majority where there wasn't like a, uh, a split of the kind that I think a lot of people were predicting. Um, Do we think that the court's just gonna be getting along <laughs> like, like this? Took, <laughs> well, or, I, or was this was this term a bit of an outlier? I think um, um, Jimmy, you can probably you know covering the last two cases of the term probably uh, <laughs> gave us some indication of, of whether that's true or not. Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting to see the last month of the term in June. Obviously, the term ended on. July 1st with a pair of pretty divisive cases, but at least in the final weeks of the 2020 term, there were, like you said, some, if not unanimous, like near unanimous um, votes in pretty controversial cases. We're not talking about the kind of low-hanging fruit here, but, you know, big blockbusters involving the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. Um, We had a big LGBTQ rights case. We had cases involving claims of child uh, forced labor, um, student athlete compensation, and all of these cases were decided by pretty broad majorities, like I said, if not unanimous, then an eight to one or a seven to two vote. And so it was interesting just kind of being an observer of the court, you know, at a time when it's perceived as just another political organ, when people kind of expect the justices broadly to vote in line with the, you know, the partisan interests of the party that appointed them. The justice in in the final weeks, I should say, didn't really do that. Now, of course, this any illusion of harmony was pretty much shattered on the last day of the term when you had um, two six to three rulings um, where all of the Republican appointees 
were in the majority and all three uh, Democratic appointees were in the minority. And so you had a lot of progressive and Democratic um, interest groups kind of claiming vindication of sorts that they've been uh, slamming the Supreme Court as just purely another political body. But I think that the story of the term is a little bit more complicated than that, um, as you can probably attest to Jackie having poured over the the data. So why don't we talk about some of these new dynamics a little bit? So we know it was kind of there were more consensus rulings, so to speak. But, you know, we had the justices just because they have an R, the, the president that appointed them had an R in front of its name as opposed to a D. They're not carbon copies of one another. Um, so, Jackie, can you talk about maybe some of where these newer justices are falling you know, in the in the dynamics of the nine justices on the bench, who's you know, more, where are the kind of alliances forming, and and who are some of the new uh, factions that we've been seeing on the court? Sure, I, I mean, one of the things we look at is you know who's most in the majority on these fifty, particularly on these fifty four signed opinions that we got from the court this year, this term, and you know, on the kind of bottom line judgments. Uh, Kavanaugh was actually most in the majority. He was in the majority in all but two cases. Um, and close behind him was Roberts. You know, he was in the majority in all but four. Um, and then you sort of get into, you know, Barrett is really close behind them. And she wasn't there for um, about 10 of the cases we got signed opinions on uh, this term. But she was she was pretty often in the majority. So it seems like we have, between Barrett and Roberts and Kavanaugh, sort of a a group that's intent on being <laughs> being in the majority in any way they can. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like when those three are, are kind of forming like a little median block there, they can pretty much decide the outcome of a lot of cases. And this is different than, than obviously the last term where you had the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg as the fourth Democratic appointee. And so, you know, with her replacement by Justice Amy Coney Barrett, it's been interesting to see... Um, you know the basically the um, the power dynamic shift over to the new median justice, Justice Brett Kavanaugh. So the talk last term was all about how uh, Chief Justice Roberts was Mister Majority, and I think he was in the majority most of the time, and and could kind of tilt a case one way or the other. And now it's become Kavanaugh, and and you've seen him exercise those swing votes occasionally. Uh, we right before we started recording, we took a look at some of the five to four decisions and the most frequent five to four alignment was having the three liberal justices together with not only Roberts, but also Kavanaugh. And that's been a really interesting dynamic to see play forward. I wonder, Natalie, what you think is behind, you know, maybe at least with Justice Barrett, did that kind of live up to your expectations of how she would fall on the on the on the bench being kind of part of this more centrist median coalition as opposed to you know maybe the Thomas Alito Gorsuch lineup that we've seen so frequently in dissent so I think with Justice Barrett I'm still struggling to like really feel where exactly she she lands right in in terms of the court dynamics um you know, we heard a lot from her in terms of oral arguments, but she didn't get to write so much. We didn't hear from her a ton in terms of actual opinion writing. Um, but I do, I, I do think it has been interesting to see her kind of, you know, start to forge these alliances. I, I, I personally think it's still too early to tell whether this will be like exactly what we expect to keep seeing from her next term and in the future. Yeah, I thought those dynamics were 
kind of really interesting to observe in a case called Fulton versus Philadelphia this term. It was a case asking whether the city of Philadelphia um, violated a Catholic foster care agency's First Amendment rights when it terminated um, their contract with the agency because of its um, longstanding policy of refusing to place uh, foster children with same-sex couples. So this was a case where the judgment was unanimous on its face, right? So it was a 9-0 decision by the Supreme Court in favor of this foster care agency, ruling that, yes, the city of Philadelphia did in fact violate the agency's First Amendment rights to free exercise of religion. But if you dug into the opinion, it was pretty fascinating. So it was a really narrow ruling um, that had to do mostly like with the structure of the city's contract with the agency and how a particular exemption provision played out. So it didn't have the broad, you know, ramifications for religious freedom that, you know, a lot of the justices on the court wanted it to. And part of the reason for that was because Justice Amy Coney Barrett didn't think that this case was the proper vehicle to reach um, this broader question about whether this um, landmark First Amendment ruling should be overturned. Um, it's a it's a ruling called Employment Division versus Smith, and a number of conservatives for years have wanted to see this thing thrown out the window. And so Justice Amy Coney Barrett writes a separate concurrence. She says, you know, I agree with some of the arguments here that this precedent called Employment Division versus Smith is kind of standing on shaky ground, but I don't really think that this is the case to overturn it. And you had, you know, a, a, a concurrence by, I think, Justice uh, Samuel Alito and Justice Neil Gorsuch, they each wrote separate concurrences that read kind of like dissents. They said, you know, the court was kind of lacking fortitude here and not taking the further step of overturning this Smith precedent. And, you know, maybe they're trying to play both sides and they won't or they don't want to pick sides, but eventually it's going to lead to more litigation in the courts going forward. And so you have this very stark contrast between the strategies of someone like Justice Barrett and someone like Justice Gorsuch, where Barrett is kind of, even though maybe her her judicial philosophy is one that aligns with Gorsuch, the, the, the actual application of it is one where we're going to take it pretty slow. We're going to go incrementally here, and we're not going to just reach for the broadest holding we can find. And I and I think, Jackie, you, you touched on this in your story where, you know, a lot of these big unanimous or nearly unanimous rulings came at the expense of some substance here because in order to reach consensus, you got to go a little bit narrower. Right. It did seem that, you know, there was a cost to unanimity or near unanimity. And that cost was, um, you know, you had to pay the price in very narrow rulings. I do think there was a lot of speculation before Barrett came on the court about where she would fall in the kind of range of conservative justices. And there was some speculation that maybe she would be closer to Alito or Gorsuch. And at least this term, it seems like perhaps she's closer to Kavanaugh and Roberts. Um, I think, you know, this is just one term and it's her, you know, sort of freshman term. So I think, you know, she has a lot of room to go in a lot of different directions. And so... There's sort of, I think sometimes there's a tradition of justices being a little more cautious and a little more careful their first term. Um, so I think we'll just have to see uh, in the upcoming terms if that's, if this is characteristic of Barrett or if she's kind of just getting warmed up. So we've been talking obviously about the kind of alliances and the, you know, kumbaya moments here in the court, but uh, 
What what really usually grabs our attention are the descents. Uh, Jackie, what did the descents of this term kind of tell us about the court and kind of the dynamics happening there? I mean, I think you <laughs> any discussion of the descents of this term really has to start with the last day of the term and <laughs> Kagan's descent in and work backwards. Um, this is <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, in a case that's that, that's in the cases that came down at the end of the term, the Arizona voting laws case and the uh, charity donation donor disclosure case, you know, that had such stark, I- that were divided on such stark ideological lines. I mean, if there was ever a moment to, for the uh, dissenting side to pull out all the stops, that was it. And, um, you know, Kagan wrote the dissent in the Arizona voting laws case, and she really swung for the fences. <laughs> um, she was really going for it. Um, I think at one point she called the majority opinion a law-free zone. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know. That's the, one you can imagine she would have probably, like, read from the bench had the court yes. been, you know, I- I- hearing cases in person, but. You know, and I, you know, I think, you know, a lot of justices kind of like to take the gloves off when they're writing dissents. <laughs> um, I think, uh, Alito's in in the Affordable Care Act case was another one where he had some some pretty choice invective for the majority mm-hmm. opinion written by Breyer. Yeah, I, and it was funny too because Thomas wrote a concurrence um, that again this was like the, the the term of concurrences that <laughs> that read like dissents because in the ACA yeah. case Thomas is no fan of the ACA and he really sympathized with the underlying arguments that. Um, this law was invalid as a result of, you know, congressional changes with the with the tax bill. It's a, it's a complicated case. We've talked about it before. But basically, he says, I'm very sympathetic to the arguments. Um, you know, the, the law's defenders have been kind of pulled off an about face here. However, I don't think that the Republican plaintiffs necessarily have standing. So he's more of a, a standing strickler than he was willing to kind of overcome, even though he was no fan of the affordable care act but yeah it, it didn't seem like you know we were kind of reaching for some of these dissents um before you know the last week of the term just because of like like we were talking about how unanimous or nearly unanimous the court has been it wasn't kind of big in the way of some of the fireworks that we've seen in terms past i would say i think too you know there was a lot of writing separately this term and concurrences and our dissents um I think, Jimmy, you were joking with me kind of midterm that, you know, sometimes trying to figure out the exact uh, vote count for for any case was a little challenging this term. You know, justices would agree with this part of it or that part of it and essentially the bottom line, but with one little quibble about a footnote. Um, And so there was a lot of, you know, concurrence writing um, and partial concurrence writing just to sort of clarify everyone's various positions. That's always the, that's always the dreaded moment, right? When you're when you're assigned to cover a decision and you you scroll down to the bottom of the the syllabus yes. there to see the vote count and it's so and so joined parts one through four of the opinion and had the opinion of the court for parts one and two and so and so wrote a partial dissent and a partial <laughs> yes just, and every moment I'm like oh poor Jackie she's got to figure out what the vote <laughs> count is and add it to her tally. I know in previous terms a lot we've talked a lot about you know how we thought the explosion in, you know, additional writings was because of the, you know, highly divided kind of 5-4 
makeup of the court and the fact that we no longer have that high division, but we still have the explosion of additional writings. Just, I feel like this is just what the modern Supreme Court is. <laughs> it did feel like it was a fe- almost a feature of these narrow, unanimous, or, or almost unanimous rulings. It's like, this is how we got here. <laughs> we need mm-hmm. to explain it, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it, it just look at, at Justice Thomas. You know, he, for so long, he, I feel like he tried to lead the discussion through dissent, but now he's doing it through concurrence opinion mm-hmm. writing in, in many ways. You know, it, it, I feel like it's just a tool that the justices feel like they need to utilize to get their you know, perspective and, and, and across to, to to the other justices, to legal scholars, the world, et cetera. Right. And, it, and it's a, and in many cases, it's a, it's a roadmap for where the justice wants to see the law go. And, the, and, and I go back to that Philadelphia case where the, where the justices are saying, we should have overturned this precedent in this case, but we should definitely do it in the next case. And you saw that in in several cases, um, they're they're not only signaling to their colleagues that this is where they want the law to go, but they're also signal, signaling to the litigants who file these cases and saying, hey, give me a case that's going to put this one on a platter. And I think just to kind of bring it all home here, we, we talked about, you know, how Barrett, it's her, it's her, it was her freshman year on the bench, and there were some very big cases that were decided by narrow rulings. But it'll be really interesting to see how this, um, how the next term plays out, because I think it's worth mentioning that you could make the argument that this was a little bit of a quiet term, even though there were big cases, they were resolved narrowly. I don't think you can say the same thing about next term, where you already have um, cases that have been added to the docket that you know pr- that involve extremely controversial issues like Roe versus Wade or whether the court should expand Second Amendment rights outside the home. And there are other cases potentially pending that could affect um, the court's doctrine on affirmative action. I mean, I think it's fair to say that we'll, and we say this every year, but we'll learn a lot more um, about the court's dynamics next term to see whether some of this maybe moderation, if that's the right word, maybe not, but whether some of this, um, these narrow consensus rulings will continue as, you know, litigants serve up some of these big conservative agenda items on a platter for the court to rule on. Yeah, I think we were we were very much still in the shadow of the pandemic this term. We're working with, you know, we ended the term with, you know, not that many cases historically. Um, you know, so I think Next term, we'll get a much clearer sense of whether this was the court was kind of holding back a little bit or whether this was scene setting for terms to come. Mm -hmm. Well, you also said the word shadow, which immediately made me think of (laughs) the shadow docket, (laughs) which is kind of another story of this term. So we're talking about for the listeners, just some clarity here. We've been talking about um, signed opinions in argued cases. So these are the ones that get full briefing and oral arguments, and they're decided by the court, and the justices all kind of say, you know, which way they voted. But there's an there's another aspect to the court's docket called the shadow docket, and these are cases that don't go through this normal uh, process of briefing, oral argument, and signed opinions. And some of them are, you know, emergency applications in contentious cases, and and their orders that you know are handed down in the in the wee hours of the night. And they're unsigned, and they can kind of have some pretty pretty broad implications. Now, it's true that in the context of the 
2020 election, the court kind of wanted to not get its hands dirty with all of that litigation and, and de- denied a number of applications and petitions in regards to that. But f- when it came to the pandemic, those happened to be some pretty controversial rulings where the conservative majority was not afraid to kind of flex um, its, its, its muscle and, and, and kind of br- lay out these broad protections for uh, religious liberty interests at a time when public health officials were trying to kind of keep some of these religious gatherings to a minimum. And so even though there was unanimity on the actual merits docket, as they call it, the shadow docket was a little bit less so. So potentially you could see that going forward as well. But again, I don't want to paint the picture like it was completely kumbaya, as they say, the entire term. There were some uh, squabbles, at least, uh, you know, stretching back to the beginning. It did feel like the shadow docket was where a lot of the action was and the excitement was this term. Um, I think I will be interested to see, you know, this term had a pandemic. It also had, it was an election year. Um, you know, we're just coming out of an administration that really liked to use the shadow docket. They liked to go uh, straight to the Supreme Court when they could. Um, so I, I guess I'm wondering, you know, is the shadow docket and the rise of the shadow docket going to be a feature going forward or is that going to be play less of a role um, as we have different facts on the ground? Well, I think there's a lot more spotlight on the shadow docket, right? I mean, we, we just had a congressional hearing on it. Um, right. So so I actually, I, I do think that they will rein it in a little bit, but I think just like the explosion of, you know, additional writings, it is just part of what makes this Supreme Court the Supreme Court, and I don't think it's going to go away, um, especially because, like, look, how many arguments are, have they been fitting in per term? Last couple terms, it's been, what, 53, 54? That's what the last, like, two terms have been. I don't think we're in for a marked increase next term, um, although Jimmy, correct me if I'm wrong on that, I, I, but you know, I, I think there's only so much they can, they get done through the more transparent oral argument process and a lot more that needs, they, they feel they can do through the shadow docket. Yeah. It's been really interesting to observe like the shrinking of the court's actual merit socket over the years. And, and Jackie, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think last terms was like the lowest it had been in you know, a century or something yes. like that yeah. since, <laughs> since the Civil War. So, um, you know, there have been calls to, you know, take any number of reforms um, to kind of expand the court's actual merits docket where you can have some of that public process lay out. And, you know, this all comes in the context of, like we, like I talked about earlier, um, you know, some call it a legitimacy crisis and uh, where, you know, uh, you have a, a commission that has literally been set up by the president of the United States to examine reforms to the court. And we know that the justices are not very um, happy about that. And in fact, in a forthcoming book by Justice Breyer, who I should say at the time of us recording this <laughs> episode, has not, um, you know, given in to, to, to calls for him to step down from the court and appears to be uh, ready to join the bench. He has a forthcoming book uh, out in, I believe, September about the, you know, about the, the the perception of politics and how damaging that is that the justices are using political motivations in cases. And so, yeah, you definitely have a situation, I think, this term 
where the court maybe was trying to kind of push back on that in a, in a limited amount of cases where they're striking these narrow technical consensus rulings. And perhaps at some point or another, to the extent that they even can, try and prove a point that what they're doing is not politics and what they're doing is actual law. Um, you know, I think listeners will come to their own conclusions about that, but it's it's certainly been interesting to watch. And I don't know how much time we have left, but uh, Jackie and Natalie, this has been great kind of going over everything. And any any final thoughts, Jackie, before we, before we call you back next term to kind of break down some <laughs> of the statistics for us? I am looking forward to seeing whether the court's going to be in person again next term and things really get back to normal and how that may or may not change things. Uh, I really hope that I can still listen in from home, <laughs> but I guess we'll see what the court decides over the summer. Yeah, that 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 has been a nice part of it that I hope they keep, um, although I'd like to also see them kind of go back to the court and kind of see what, what they do with in terms of oral argument um, uh, structures. If they keep this, you know, everyone has a lot of time. <laughs> You, you go first and you go next. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, it's very orderly compared to their normal uh, free-for-all arguments and the, the kind of the big plus side, I would say. Um, and I think a lot of court watchers feel this way. In addition to it just being you know accessible to, to everyone, um, you, you've heard from, for instance, Justice Clarence Thomas, who is someone that didn't really speak up um, at all. I mean, occasionally he would chime in, but that would be like every few years or so. And so to see whether maybe some of that will hold, um, obviously, you know, more court access and transparency is always a great thing. And, and one other kind of question mark we haven't seen before is Justice Amy Coney Barrett. She joined the court in uh, in the remote setting. We've not yet seen what she'll be like in a free-for-all <laughs> kind of feeding frenzy that is the, the court's normal hot bench. So, yeah, we'll be back in October, of course. Um, with more analysis uh, about the Supreme Court. So thanks so much, uh, Jackie and Natalie, for diving into this term. Thanks, guys. We'd like to thank our producer, Stephen Trader, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our special guest, Jackie Bell. Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere listed in podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review.